Good morning. You guys really know how to sing when you want to. <laughs> Praise God. It's easy to sing when you got something to sing about, amen? And uh, hopefully by God's grace, we're going to talk about something that we should be singing about, the, the first fruits of the promise. So if you could find with me the book of Genesis, chapter 23 and verse 3. Sort of having finished um, last week that pivotal chapter in Genesis 22, where Abraham's faith was so mightily tested, it concluded with uh, the lineage leading to Rebecca. She will become a big deal in Genesis 24. But before we get to Genesis 24, we have to do Genesis, what, 23, which is a description of the death and burial of Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah. It's probably one of those passages that most people read over very quickly. Most normal churches would probably just skip right over this. But you're really not in a normal church, amen? And we like to really dig into things and go through it verse by verse. Last week, Genesis 23, 1 and 2, we saw Sarah's death. Her age is given there in verse 1. She is 127 years old, making Abraham 137 at the time of her death. Isaac, at this time, the child of promise, is 37 years old, and Sarah dies, verse 2. Abraham appropriately mourns, verse 2, and all of these things took place in Hebron, which is just north of where Abraham had been sojourning in Beersheba. And now, very interestingly, the Holy Spirit chose to record for us sort of a a negotiation, if you will, concerning how Abraham actually got his his hands on a plot of real estate in the promised land, something that had been promised to him by God, but he had not received legally a square inch of the promised land. And so he's dealing with this situation where I'm an inheritor of the land, but I don't own anything yet. The land is filled with Canaanites, and I need to bury my wife. And how did that come about? How did he attain this burial plot? This is what we would call the first fruits, the initial crop of the total promise yet to come. So here's an outline that we're going to try to work through as we try to get through verses uh, 3 through 18 today, maybe further. But you'll notice, uh, everybody's laughing, you'll notice Abraham's uh, request there, verse 3. Take a look at verse 3, Genesis 23, verse 3. Then Abraham arose from before his dead, that would be Sarah, and spoke to the sons of Heth. Who are these sons of Heth? Well, the sons of Heth were the lineage of Ham. Remember that after the flood, the world was repopulated through Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the most significant being Shem, because through Shem, Genesis 9 verse 26, is going to ultimately come the Messiah. But Abram, excuse me, Noah has another son named Ham, And through Ham came Canaan. The Canaanites, those from Cain, those descending from Ham to Canaan, became the Canaanites, and they are the ones that settled in the land of Canaan, yet to become the land of Israel. Uh, This is a tract of real estate that God promised to Abraham. He made that promise back 
in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, and yet the promise seemed so uh, far-fetched because the land was already occupied by Ham's descendants. Abraham is having to completely and totally walk by faith because what God said in the supernatural made no sense logically and rationally from the perspective of the natural world. But part of Canaan's descendants was this group of people called the Hethites, and um, they are the ones that Abraham is beginning to make a conversation with concerning a potential burial plot for Sarah, who has just died. Verse 4, Abraham says to the sons of Heth, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Abraham gives his position. The land is promised to me, but... I haven't received any of that promise yet. It's all future. And so what really am I amongst you? I am a stranger and a sojourner. I can't think of a better description of the Christian today in the world we're living. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11 says of us in the age of the church, Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Who are we in terms of our identity in today's world? We're strangers and aliens. Why is that? Because ever since the fall that took place in Eden... Satan has been given authority over the earth. In fact, if you look here on the screen, these are all of the names used to describe Satan in his present position. He's the prince of this world. He's the god, little g, of this age. He's the prince and power of the air. This is why we're told to put on the full armor of God we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking to, seeking someone to have a glass of iced tea with. Whoops, doesn't say that. Seeking someone to devour. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. This is why... In Scripture, we're told to let our affections not rest upon the earth. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. I think sometimes in the United States of America, with the blessings that we have received materially, it's just very easy to forget that this world is not our home. We are simply pilgrims passing through. The world operates by a completely different value system than we operate by. And so we should not become discouraged when the world starts to speak a value system that's opposite of our own. I was just talking to a brother there there in the restroom, and he was talking about there are certain people in the United States of America that have already labeled people like ourselves as domestic terrorists. It's very disheartening to learn that, that ordinary Americans would be labeled as domestic terrorists simply for speaking up on behalf of their children at school board meetings. But at the same time, it's not surprising, is it, that the world would do that? Of course the world would say something like that. The world operates by a different value system than we operate by. Jesus, in the upper room, as he was sending out his disciples into ministry, spoke to this in John 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Don't 
um, become discouraged that you really don't seem to fit in with your work environment, perhaps, in the office, sometimes within your own family. You seem to sort of stick out like a sore thumb. You seem to think differently than everybody else. And in the, that environment in the world, you start to think to yourself, well, what am I, what am I doing wrong? No, the Bible is saying, what are you doing right? This is what you're doing right. You have a new identity as a Christian. And so Abraham, by way of parallel, had that identity. He was a stranger and an alien in a land that God had actually given him. Because God had not yet executed the promise. We're in the same situation. The world is ours. Do you realize that? The day is going to come in human history where Jesus will rule this world with a rod of iron. And we, as his wife, will rule alongside his delegated authority. Now, obviously that day has not arrived, but it's coming. And in the meantime, we are pilgrims. We're passing through a traverse, an area which has not yet been occupied by God. Primarily, it's been occupied by Satan. So Abraham gives his position here as really a stranger and um, an alien. And then if you look down at verse 4, he says, not only am I a stranger and a sojourner among you, he says, give me a burial site that I may bury my dead. You'll notice this word buried. If you drop down to verse 19, it says, after this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of Machpelah. Even in the New Testament, you'll find that the dead in Christ are buried. It says in Acts 8, verse 2, concerning Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity, the church age, it says some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. One of the reasons um, I bring up this subject of burial is that's a common question that I get. What is it, pastor? Is it cremation or burial? I used to be sort of um, agnostic on that, not really taking a view on it. But I think the more that I've looked into this and studied it, God's proper method for the deceased Christian is not cremation, which actually comes from paganism, but it is burial. Now, when I say that, I realize that a lot of people are pushing the panic button. Oh, no, we had Aunt so-and-so given over to the Neptune Society, and her ashes are thrown into the ocean somewhere, and, oh, my goodness, I'm never going to see her again. No, cremation is not the unpardonable sin. God, at the final resurrection, is capable of recycling those ashes So don't feel like because I take a position on burial or cremation that if you've cremated that somehow that's the unpardonable sin. But I am of the persuasion that if you're actually looking at this biblically, which is how you ought to look at every issue, the proper method of burial or the proper method of for a deceased is burial rather than cremation. I don't find anybody in the Bible that is of God cremating anybody. I see that as mostly coming from Eastern religions, Eastern mysticism. And I'm fully aware that there's cost issues involved. But the article that convinced me of this, I would encourage you to look it up on your own. It's, It's very well done. It goes through the arguments and the counter-arguments, so all the perspectives are represented. It's an article by the late Norman Geisler, a well-known Christian apologist. And the title of it is From Ashes to Ashes. Is Burial the Only Christian Option? By Norman Geisler and Douglas Potter. And you can find that at Equip. 
www.equip.org. Uh, if you just Googled burial versus cremation, Norman Geisler, G. E-I-S-L-E-R, I think they make a pretty good case after being very fair to the different sides that burial is more the method that's in keeping with God's word. I bring that up because it says burial in the text, and that's a question that I get all of the time. You'll notice um, verses 5 and 6 where you have a response. First of all, verse 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. And then Abraham says to these sons of Heth, these Canaanites dwelling in the land, give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead, that would be Sarah, out of my sight. So give me possession of part of the land, which is mine, but it hasn't been legally bequeathed to me yet so that I can have a proper burial site for Sarah. And you drop down to verses 5 and 6, and Abraham's position is given. As the Hittites, we're going to find out later that these people are not just descendants of Heth, but they're actually Hittites. They give a response to Abraham's request. And we pick that up in verses 5 and 6. Notice this. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. So the occupants of the land understood who Abraham was. And Abraham had actually become a mighty prince amongst the people. Abraham was being blessed in a land that was not yet his by way of legal transaction. That, by the way, is what God is doing in your life. You're not home yet. You're a pilgrim. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want to use you today. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to help you today. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want to bless you today because he does. Abraham was walking in the blessings of God even though he was not home yet. And here the occupants of the land, the Canaanites, the sons of Heth, acknowledge that Abraham is a mighty prince among them. That is an outworking of the promise that God gave to Abraham going back to Genesis 12. It says in Genesis 12 verse 2, God speaking to Abram, whose name at that time hadn't been changed, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I'm here to tell you that essentially everything that God says will happen. It may not happen on our timetable, but it does happen. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And that's what's happened. Chapter 12, I'll make your name great. By the time you get to chapter 23, the occupants of the land are acknowledging that Abraham is, in fact, a mighty prince amongst the people. It's interesting to me how Abraham's name is respected and revered today in the great religions of the world. Number one, Christianity. Number two, Judaism. Number three, a religion that we would consider ultimately a false religion, but it's still a religion that influences the hearts and minds of people. Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, I mean, those are the three big ones. It's interesting to me how in, in all three, Abraham's name is respected and revered. It shows you that God cannot lie. He means what he says and says what he means. And when God makes a promise, it's just a matter of time before that promise is executed. And here you see it being executed even here as early as Genesis chapter 23. You look down at the second part of verse 6, and it says, Bury your dead in the choicest 
of your graves. None of us will refuse his grave for burying your dead. Now, this kind of reads like a freebie. Yeah, just take whatever you want. But as I'll show you, this is not a freebie. It's the beginning of a negotiation process, which was common in the ancient Near East. More on that later. You go down to verses 7 through 9, and Abraham makes an offer. Notice what he says there in verse 7. So Abraham arose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, If you drop down to verse 12, you'll see Abraham doing the exact same thing. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He doesn't come in, you know, with his guns a-blazing. Hey, God gave me this land. Fork over that burial plot. He's respectful. He's reverent. He understands that God may have promised him the land, but hasn't fulfilled the promise yet. And so this is how negotiation started in the ancient Near East, this basic custom of reverence and respect that Abraham is involved in here. And then you take a look at verses 8 and 9, and it says, He spoke with them, saying, "It is If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, uh, for me. Verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field for the full price. Look at that. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So basically, Abraham offers to buy a cave, the cave of Machpelah. The cave is owned by Ephraim, the son of Zohar. So you'll notice that in the Bible, when it identifies people genealogically, it's basically saying these are real people. There was a real Abraham. There was a real Ephron. And Abraham wants to buy this cave at the end of the field. As you look at verse 11, Verse 17 and verse 19, there is mind-numbing detail about this field. You know, where it faces, uh, that the cave is associated with the field, that there's trees on the field. And so as you read this, you get the impression that this is eyewitness testimony. This is something that Abraham probably wrote down. And eventually it ended up in the hands of Moses, who compiled for us eventually the book of Genesis. And you'll notice this expression, I believe it's in verse 9, the full price. Abraham wants to pay the full price for this cave. And now what happens, verses 10 and 11, is Ephron, the owner, gives a counteroffer. And take a look at verse 10. It says, Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth and Ephron the Hittite. So here we learn for the first time of this individual called Ephron. And here we learn that Ephron was ultimately a Hittite. Now, the Hittites we're going to read about a little bit later in Scripture. They're found in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. In fact, when David made the wrong decision to commit adultery, he did so with Uriah, uh, excuse me, Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite. 1 Samuel 11, verse 3 says, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the son of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So who are these Hittites? The Hittites are basically descendants, ultimately, of the sons of Heth. So it is interesting to me how factually based and specific the scripture is, giving all of these kinds of identities. You look at the second part of verse 10, and it says, He answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 
even of all who went in at the gate of this city. Now, you'll notice that this is a legal transaction that's happening here. This is happening in public. That's why it says hearing. In fact, it's happening at the gate. Now, when you study in the ancient Near East the concept of the gate, the gate of the city is where the heavy deals, negotiations, decisions took place. That's why it's so significant that in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, Lot, who was in carnality, was sitting at the gate of the city of Sodom. He had arisen to a place of prominence within that wicked city. You'll see the same thing in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, where a very significant contract takes place. And at the beginning of that chapter, it says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. So what is happening here is an actual real estate deal, if I can put it that way. It's taking place legally. It's taking place in public. And when you look at verse 11, you see Ephron, the owner of the cave, what he is actually offering. You have his counteroffer there in verse 11. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, you read that. It's, it kind of reads like the owner is saying you can have it for free. But that's not true. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this passage, verse 11, says, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field I give you and the cave that is therein. I give it to you in the presence of my children. I give it to you. Bury your dead there. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says, Here again is what appears to be an offer of a free place to bury, but the free offer was not intended to be taken seriously because that was just the way things were done in the ancient Near East. Abraham understood that he was not to accept the offer as given. So the more you study the culture of the time period, the more you start to understand that this is actually the beginning, if you will, of a negotiation process. And so you drop down to, um, well, verses 12 and 13, where we have Abraham's counter offer. Verses 12 and 13 says, Abraham bowed before the land, the people of the land. Verse 13, he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will, only please listen to me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. You'll notice Abraham is respectful. He's bowing down. You'll notice um, Abraham's offer. He wants to pay full price. So it's repeating verse 13 what we saw there in verse 9. And that moves us away from Abraham's counteroffer to the actual asking price. Now we're getting to the bottom line. How much is this piece of real estate going to be sold for? We have Ephron's asking price, verses 14 and 15. Notice what verse 14 says. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me, a piece of land with 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Here's what it's going to cost you, 400 shekels. Now, we read that and it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But the truth of the matter is that was what was called an inflated price. The average cost of that time period was four shekels per acre, and he just asked Abraham to pay 40 shekels per acre. Inflation. You think inflation is bad for us? 
Dr. Fruchtenbaum says of this particular passage, then came Ephraim's asking price in Genesis 23, verses 14 and 15. And Ephraim answered Abraham, saying, Unto him, my Lord, hearken unto me a piece of the land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Yes, he was willing to sell the land and the cave for 400 shekels. Then with the question, what is that betwixt? That's kind of interesting language, isn't it? That must be King James. What is that betwixt between me and you? He implied that this was not too high a price. In fact, this was a highly inflated price because the average cost then was four shekels per acre. But Abraham at this price will be paying 40 shekels per acre. Again, this followed a Middle East custom in that the initial asking price was intended to be deliberately high. And then they would begin negotiating downward. So the offer was at a very high price, and then Abraham could bury his dead. Kind of the expectation is that Abraham would now offer a more reasonable price. Offer, counteroffer, etc., So part of the ancient Near Eastern custom is the initial asking price is way too high. And let's now begin the negotiating process downward. And here's what is very, very interesting in verse 6 is Abraham does not negotiate downward. He accepts the price, although it's unreasonable. Notice, if you will, verse 16. It says, Abraham listened to Ephron And Abraham, notice there's no negotiation here. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver um, commercial standard. Abraham does not negotiate downward. Abraham accepts the inflated price. Now, this is very interesting Because there are people today that will say that the nation of Israel, modernly, does not belong in the promised land. And yet, if you read the book by Joan Peters, from time immemorial it's called, she was basically sort of a liberal, pro-Palestinian journalist, and she set out to prove that the Jews living in the land of Israel today, have no claim to the land. That land actually belongs to the Palestinians. Her work has been supplemented by the gentleman at the right, a Canadian lawyer, Jacques-Paul Gutier. say that five times fast, a Canadian international lawyer who essentially set out to prove in a dissertation done at the University of Geneva that the Jews in the land today are there legally. And he, on his dissertation committee, had all hostile readers. And as someone that has gone through the dissertation process myself, um, when you're in that situation, you've got to be sure your ducks are in a row. And he produced a multi-hundred page doctoral dissertation proving essentially what Joan Peters said from time immemorial, that you can say whatever you want about the nation of Israel. You can say anything you want about them politically that you don't like. Policy-wise, you may not like something, but here's something you can't say. You cannot say that the Jews in the land of Israel today are illegally occupying that land. Because when you listen to the media, they will repeat over and over again, illegal occupation. Illegal occupation. Both Peters and Jacques-Paul Goudier have proven that the Jews in the land have done nothing illegal. In fact, that land is theirs. They have rightful ownership to the land. They use many legal proofs to get across their points, but one of the things they begin to talk about in these books is that the Jews 
prior to 1948, bought that land, which then was a swamp. And catch this, they bought it at highly inflated prices. They, they bought them at prices that were far beyond what the land at that time was worth. Now, of course, today it's worth much more because of what the nation of Israel has turned that land into in terms of a productive agriculture, productive economy. And so the Jews modernly bought that land pre-1948, which was Israel's War of Independence, at prices that were deliberately high and highly inflated. I find that a very interesting parallel because that's what Abraham is doing here. So he's involved here in this um, ancient Near custom, and he should have done a counteroffer negotiating downward. He doesn't. He tells Ephron the Hittite that I'm going to take this land at its uh, inflated price. Abraham accepts the inflated price. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why in the world would he do that? He's trying to demonstrate, I believe, that he's not beholden to anyone. Someone can't come along later, because this is all being done in public, right? This is at the gate. Someone can't come along later and say, you know what, that cave that you just bought for the burial for the burial of, of your wife, that's somehow illegitimate. It's somehow illegal. Nobody can make that argument against Abraham. You'll notice that he did the exact same thing in Genesis 14, verses 21 through 24, concerning the king of Sodom. Genesis 14, verse 21 says, The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give the people to me and take the goods yourself. The king of Sodom, obviously Sodom, a wicked civilization, the king basically said, take whatever you want. Now, most people in that circumstance would say, okay, I'll take things from the king of Sodom, but not Abraham. What Abraham says is, I will not take a thread of sandal or anything that is yours For fear, you would say, I have made Abraham rich. In other words, king of Sodom, I don't want anything from you. Because I don't want people down the road to say, I'm rich because of you. I want people to say, I am rich because of the hand of God. There is, I believe, a New Testament parallel for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Our walk as Christians should be so upright. It should be so circumspect. It should be so free of any underhanded dealings that people can look at our life and say, you know, that life is blessed. Not because of the manipulation and the scheming of man, but because of the hand of God. Most people are trying so hard to get ahead that they're trampling on whoever they have to to get ahead. That wasn't how Abraham is functioning here as he's walking by faith. He wants people to understand that his blessings come from the hand of God to the point where he said to the king of Sodom, I don't really want anything from you even though the king of Sodom said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 14, you can take whatever you want from me. Abraham said no. I mean, is that what you would do? Is that what I would do if confronted with that opportunity? Abraham has an opportunity to negotiate the price downward, but his trust is ultimately in God. He knows that God ultimately gave him the real estate called the land of Israel. So what's an inflated price? Not that big a problem at all. And it's interesting that this has a historical parallel in the modern state of Israel, who also paid highly inflated prices to purchase for themselves 
the land that we call the land of Israel. Now, I guarantee you that when you watch CNN, and I don't recommend you do, they will never bring this up. They will just keep repeating the refrain over and over again, illegal occupation. And as Hitler's population or propaganda minister said, if you repeat a lie long enough, people will believe it. Most people look at the land of Israel today and they think Israel must be doing something bad because they've done something illegal. That would throw out the work of Joan Peters. It would throw out the work of Jacques-Paul Gautier, who's staying, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, who patiently prove, there we go, just switch words, that Israel has done nothing wrong. Joan Peters is very interesting. She thought she would go over to Israel today and find all of this evidence that Israel is illegally there. That's why the title of her book is From Time Immemorial. That's the claim of the Palestinians. We've been here from time immemorial. Israel took the land away from us. Joan Peters was one of those people that we call an actual open-minded liberal. There used to be people like that. She wasn't out to prove an agenda. She was out to build her agenda from the facts. And as much as she dug into the historical evidence and the legal evidence, expecting to find within it a some kind of Palestinian claim you know, to the land, uh, she found the exact opposite. And one of the things she found is how the Jews bought this swampland at inflated prices, and she ended up switching her perspective, uh, switching her point of view politically. Interesting parallel with what we're reading here with um, Abraham. The book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22 says in the King James Version, abstain from all appearances of evil. It's interesting to me that the calling of the Christian is not to just abstain from evil, but not it's also not to put yourself in a position where you can be openly accused of evil. This is what the New Testament means when it talks about an elder must have a good reputation, not just amongst the saved, but also the unsaved. Someone that is walking with the Lord and serious with God should conduct their life in terms of business and other things in such a way that they not only stay away from evil, but they stay away from situations where they could be accused of evil. It's a very high standard for leadership within the church. That's what you see Abraham walking out here as he's willing to pay this uh, very, very high inflated price. This is why he doesn't plunder the king of Sodom. He wants people to understand that his blessings come from the hand of God and not human manipulation or scheming. You know, there's a lot of things that I've done in my life that may not be necessarily evil. But unfortunately, the way I've done it has left me open to the charge of doing evil. And for those situations, I say to the Lord, forgive me. I should have conducted myself completely different. Where even the charge of evil itself, even though what I did isn't evil, even the charge of evil itself would be deflated of its power. And that's how we're to act. That's how we're to behave as Christians. You go down to verses 17 and 18 and you see the ceiling of the purchase. Verse 17, it says, So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, was which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were all deeded over to Abraham. Notice the attention to detail. Field, cave, 
trees, which direction the cave is facing. Gives you the impression that these things actually transpired. Now, here's an interesting question. Abraham wants a cave. Why did he end up with a field? There's an actual reason for that. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says the reason was that Hittite law included feudal responsibilities for landowners. In that service to be rendered to kings by the landowner fell fell only if one purchased a complete lot, but not on someone who purchased only part of the lot. Therefore, if Abraham purchased only the cave, Ephron, the owner, would still have feudal responsibilities to the king regarding it. The Hittite law, now that's the legal code which was in existence around the time of Abraham. The Hittite law required the owner of a complete unit of the land to perform the king's ilku, say that five times fast, or feudal services. The reason Ephron did not want to sell only the cave is that he would still be obliged to render feudal services. Therefore, by getting rid of all of it, the whole unit, that would free him, that's the owner, from paying feudal responsibilities to the king for that section. So Abraham wants a cave, and he ends up with a field and a cave, And you read that and you say, well, that's kind of strange, but it fits everything we know of the legal system of the day in the Hittite legal code, that if you own the field still, you were responsible to the king for certain services. And so Ephron wants to dump the whole thing. It's interesting here, at the end of the quote, he says, as part of the deed, he also mentioned the trees. And the mention of the trees is characteristic of Hittite business documents. It all fits well into the second millennium B.C. Why mention trees here? Why is it that he ends up with a whole field when all he wanted was a cave? Actually, the more you study the background of the day, what happened here fits the culture of Abraham. He's interacting with the Hittites. It fits everything we know of Hittite law. Gee, Pastor, you're boring me to death with all of this stuff. Uh, Is this relevant? Here's why it's relevant. It's relevant because you're living amongst a generation of children that are coming up. Your children and your grandchildren. And they don't believe that the Bible is historically true. They do not believe that what we are dealing with here in church is real history. Oh, this is just, uh, you know, spiritual stuff. I'm going to get real history from my public school. I'm going to get real history from my college professor. And you need to be in a position where you're being equipped by a pastor teacher to rescue the mind of your children or grandchildren, because if you don't know information like this, and they come home from school saying, hey, the teacher said this or the teacher said that, told me that the stories of the Bible are nothing more than, you know, fairy tales and Jack and the Beanstalk and Veggie Tales. And, and the professor, the teacher, the school, they've got real history. If you're not being equipped with facts like this, you're caught flat-footed. And you're going to end up losing the minds of your children and your grandchildren. So when you're sitting at Sugarland Bible Church and the pastor starts talking about Hittite law, it's not just to showcase what I know about Hittite law. I wish I knew more about it. But it is to equip you for your ministry to your children and your grandchildren who are being programmed by somebody else that the Bible is not historically true. The Bible is historically true because it fits perfectly the cultural milieu, if I can use that word, of the day. You'll notice in verse 18 that the transaction becomes public. It says to Abraham, for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, 
before all who went in at the city gate. In other words, this was public. This took place at the gate. This took place at the within the presence of the city. So down the road, when Abraham is accused of occupying a cave and a field that he really doesn't own, he can point back to the legal record books and the transaction. That's exactly what Joan Peters and Jacques-Paul Gautier pointed out concerning Israel. Israel is not an illegal occupier. There's actual legal documents on the books showing that Israel owns every square inch of what they currently possess. You can say whatever you want about Israel, love them or hate them, but here's what you can't say. You cannot use the words illegal occupation. And yet that's what you hear on the media all of the time. Illegal occupation, illegal occupation, illegal occupation. And you hear that enough and you start to think Israel must have done something wrong. Not that I just don't agree with them politically, if that's your view, but they must have done something illegal. Nothing could be further from the truth because of the legal record. That's what you're reading there in verse 18. A actual legal record. And this is how Abraham, who was promised the land but had not received the land, was able to obtain from the sons of Heth, particularly from an owner of this burial plot called Ephron, a tract of real estate where he could not cremate his wife but bury his wife. So that burial is described there in verses 19 and 20. First of all, notice the timing. Verse 19, after this, after what? After purchasing the cave legally. The timing is followed by the act. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah. Look at the details. Facing Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. What has Abraham received here for the very first time? What he has received here for the very first time is the first fruits of the promise. He now actually owns part of the land. Now, what he owns is small pickings compared to what's coming. He is promised ultimately by God a tract of real estate from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, from the Nile to the Euphrates. He certainly doesn't own that yet. He will one day in the Millennial Kingdom, but he owns a field. And the field has on it a very special cave where Abraham buried his 127-year-old spouse, mate, marital partner, after weeping for her at the beginning of the chapter. So we have the timing, the act, and then as you look down at verse 20, the very last verse in the chapter, so all you people laughing at me that we'd never make it this far, look at this. verse. I stand fully vindicated. I'm going to break my arm to pat myself on the back. But don't celebrate yet, because there's a lot of information in verse 20. You see there, verse 20, Abraham's only land possession. It says, so the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham. Deeded over, because this was public, at the gate, in the presence of witnesses. This is legal fact. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of What did Abraham just receive? The first fruits of the promise. What do you have right now as a Christian? You don't have the whole promise yet, but you've got the first fruits. God has made you promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Not the least of which is your arrival in heaven and future glorification. Did you know God has promised that to you? 
And you say, well, as a Christian, how do I ever know that I'm going to receive that? You know that you're going to receive it because God has given you the first fruits. What's the first fruits? The first fruits is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is now inside of you. That's not the fulfillment of everything God has promised, but it's a down payment. A down payment by the buyer, or the seller I should say, or the the buyer, there we go, guarantees to the seller that more payments are coming. I mean, you can know as a Christian beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything God has promised you in terms of heaven, future glorification, is going to be reality because God already gave you a down payment through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. Has Has God begun a good work in you? Do you ever see evidence of the Holy Spirit convicting you to stay away from certain things? Or encouraging you when you're distressed? Have you ever experienced the God of all comfort during an ordeal? Have you ever looked at the Bible and said, you know, I used to read that passage and I never understood it, but now I understand it. What is all of that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if God has already worked in your life through his ministry of the Holy Spirit and he's given you a down payment, does that not guarantee his promise to give to you not just a down payment, but everything he's promised to you? The Holy Spirit in our lives is called a down payment. It's in Ephesians 1 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge, down payment in other words, of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, How do I know that the day of redemption is going to arrive? Because God sealed the agreement with you by giving you the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why I've entitled this message, The First Fruits of the Promise. That's what Abraham has here. In a a land that's promised him, this is the first time he owns a legal part of it. Now, what he owns is small potatoes compared to what's coming. But he's got the first fruits. That's what you have as a Christian. You've got the first fruits which is the ministry of the Spirit of God inside of you. Anytime the Holy Spirit convicts you, encourages you, comforts you, you say to the Lord, well, thank you, Lord. Because I know that that it's your Spirit that's doing that inside of me. And that's just part one. That's just a down payment for what's coming. The lighter blue area is everything Abraham's going to possess. Obviously, Abraham doesn't possess all of that currently. But he owns a sliver, just like you do. Meaning that the complete picture, the total enchilada, or to adjust the cultural metaphor a little bit, the total shawarma, is on the horizon. By the way, this piece of real estate is a big deal because many people are going to be buried here in the Bible. Charles Ryrie says, not only Sarah, but Abraham, Isaac, Rebecca, Leah, Jacob, were all buried there. God is putting into motion things that are going to be fulfilled later on in his word. Do you remember where Abraham was from? He was from Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Why didn't Abraham just say, ah, let's get our bones together and let's ship them back to Ur of the Chaldeans? After all, his family was there, right? We got a description of the family tree at the end of Genesis 22. I mean, that would have been very easy for him to do. Grab her bones, grab her body, put them in a box or however they did things back then and ship it back to Ur of the Chaldeans. Why go to the trouble of making sure she's buried in the land of Canaan to the point where you're paying a price that's too high. Why go to the trouble? Because Abraham walked by faith. That's why. He believed what God told him about the land. He believed that his future was in the land because that's what God said. It made no logical sense to him because the Canaanites and the sons of Heth and the Hittites and the out-of-sites and the, all of them, descendants of Canaan, descendants of Ham, were occupying the land. But God said, the whole thing is yours one day. So Abraham steps out in faith and says, well, if the whole thing is mine one day, I better buy this cave and I got a field in the process in this land. It's kind of like Joseph, who at the end of the book of Genesis would have Jacob's bones transferred from Egypt to the same cave. I mean, why, why didn't Joseph just say, ah, let's bury, bury uh, Jacob, let's just bury him here in Egypt? Why go to the trouble of shipping his bones back to this cave because Joseph was walking by faith? Abraham was renouncing Ur and Haran as his home. He knew his future was in the land. Is that how you're walking today as a Christian? I mean, is is the presence of God so real in your life via the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you can instinctively and intuitively look at this wicked and perverse generation and the world in which it lives and say to yourself, you know what, I'm I'm down, but I'm not out. I may be discouraged, but I'm not defeated because this world is not my home. And you know it's not your home because you have a down payment. And there's greater promises forthcoming. See, that's the kind of walk that God is calling us to in these last days. I'm not a, look, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I don't have any ability to predict the future, but I will say this. As God is my witness, things for Christians in the United States and around the world are not going to get any easier. And you have to have a sort of walk with the Lord where you look at things happening and you say, you know what, I'm not deflated of optimism and hope because this world is not my home. I'm I'm an alien and I'm a stranger here. And I know God is going to execute everything he promised to me because I have a down payment through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So that concludes a really pivotal event in the life of Abraham, Sarah's death and burial. Next week we get into a happier subject, which is a marriage between Isaac, the son that God spared in Genesis 22, and someone whose lineage has already been introduced to us at the end of Genesis 22, someone named Rebecca. This marriage is a big deal because if you don't have an Isaac and a Rebecca, you don't have a Jacob. And if you don't have a Jacob, you don't have the 12 tribes. And if you don't have the 12 tribes, you don't have a very special tribe, the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10, through which will come Jesus Christ to the earth. So for next week, I would invite you to read Genesis 24 in preparation for that. You'll notice that a death had to happen before Abraham received the first fruits.
Did you see that? Sarah dies, so he gets the first fruits of the field and the cave. You see the parallel with Jesus? Unless Jesus had died 2,000 years ago on the cross, you would not have the first fruits of the Spirit that you now possess. And so we conclude all of our lessons, particularly in the main service, with the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with our performance. It has to do with what God did 2,000 years ago. Christianity is not a doing belief system. It is a done belief system. Jesus did it all 2,000 years ago. The only thing we're left to do is to receive what he has given to us as a free gift. And you can't receive a gift from God, according to Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, when you're trying to work for your gift. I mean, if you're working for your gift, that means the gift is not a gift. It's something you earned. And the only way to receive a gift from God, according to Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, is to believe in the one that he has sent. That's Jesus Christ. Believe is another way of saying trust, reliance upon. The Spirit convicts the unbeliever of their need to do this. They respond through volition, human free will, by trusting what Jesus done has done in their place. And just like that, they're positionally made a brand new child of God. And if that weren't enough, at the point of salvation, God gives you the first fruits, which is the Holy Spirit. First fruits is the initial part of the crop that comes in, guaranteeing the rest of the crop. That's why the Spirit of God is called the down payment. You receive that instantaneously, not from a church, not from a denomination, not from a man, not from a motivational speaker, but from God himself. When the lost sinner will place their trust in Jesus for their eternity and the safekeeping of their soul. Our exhortation for anybody within the sound of my voice, either in the building, listening online, listening after the fact, via archive that's never done this, is to respond to that convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And once that happens, you're a brand new child of God. And God loves you so much that he's even given to you, into your life, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Your body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God says, I did that for you because I love you so much that I wanted you to have a down payment so your faith could be built that God will fulfill everything else he has promised to do for you in your word. You can, in his word, you can receive Christ now even as I'm speaking. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for even this passage, which sort of seems obscure to us. But yet, when studied in light of your illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, it speaks directly into our lives. Help us to walk these principles out this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.